Hello, tested. <laughs> Okay, you ready? Alright. Do you want to close, close these doors? Just it feels cold. <laughs> okay, so today I'm going to talk about uh, the basic structure of nucleic acids from sort of <coughs> chemistry and also a bit of the mechanical side of things. And the paper that I had sent out was um, just an interesting paper. Um, from a very famous lady, um, I think Caltech, Jackie Barton, um, who's always pushed this idea that maybe um, DNA can be regarded as, as like a wire, and so that electrons can actually travel, or actually electron holes can travel down the wire through the bases. And, and so what can happen, what she thinks happens, is that uh, if you get DNA damage, you get, you're basically breaking, breaking the wire, sort of cutting the circuit, and then that's transmitted to, uh, to DNA binding proteins and tells them basically where to go. So if they're bound somewhere up here, it tells them dis to dissociate and move on down towards to, to the damage. So it's just an interesting, the, the main reason for you to sort of read that is to, just to get an idea about um, the, the structure of DNA, not only from the fact that it's ca carrying genetic information, but also it can act in other ways. Okay. I won't test you on that, but I think it's a, it's a good read. Um, so I'm going to give you some definitions first. Um, it's always good to de define what we're doing. And so uh, in all nucleic acids, the repeat unit is, is, is formally called the nucleotide. And the nucleotide contains um, a ribose, a base, and, and a phosphate group. Okay, so the phosphate group is attached to either the 3 or the 5 position. Right, three position down here, the five up here, and the base is attached to the one position. So if you go around the ribose ring, this carbon is number one, two, three, four, uh, five, five, yeah. Sorry, one, two, three, four, five. Um, now if you take the phosphate group away, then it becomes a nucleoside, okay? So it's got the free OH at both positions. And the ribose is always in the D isomer, and in the planar ring form. So you can draw this up as a linear five carbon molecule, but, um, but it's always, there's always this uh, ring type compound where you get one of the OH groups form, uh, closing up this five member ring. So it's, it helps to stabilize the, the ribose in solution. Okay, so the way that the thing is joined together to form the, to form the polymer, uh, it goes from the five down through this position, five, three, five, three, all the way down. Okay, so you start here, five prime phosphate to the three, and then back to the five prime to the three. And so they're linked together, if you read left to right, read off a DNA sequence, the actual linkage is three prime to five prime. Okay, so it goes from the three prime OH through the phosphate to the five prime. And but um, if you think about the ends of the DNA, at this end, uh, there will be no phosphate group, so there'll be a, a three OH group at the five prime end, okay? And the, at the other end, there'll be a, a three OH group at the three prime end. So you always write it five prime to three prime, and that relates to the, where the three OH group is. 
Okay. Um, if you look at the phosphate group, there's formerly one charge on this oxygen here. So the DNA has uh, one negative charge per nucleotide, or per repeat unit. And the bases themselves are heterocyclic ring compounds. Uh, the purines, I remember this, the purines, the smaller word, is the bigger base. It's, the two, it's, the, um, it's got two rings in it. I'll come back to in a minute and show you that. So there's adenine and guanine. And the pyrimidines, which is a longer word, is the, is the, is the smaller base, the one that's got the single, the single ring. And those are thymine and cytosine. Okay, this is an old picture, but it tells you all you need to know about how Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize. Um, so, years before that, well, so ten years or so before that, Shark Gafford noticed that this little figure here means the mole fraction. Okay, so the number of moles of adenine equal, always equals the number of moles of thymine when you do a chemical analysis of a DNA solution. And the number of moles of guanine always equals the number of moles of cytosine. And then, so Watson and Crick, what they did, they, uh, they stole the diffraction patterns from the guys in London, and which showed that the DNA is a, is a helical structure. So Rosalind Franklin, I'm sure you all know the story about Rosalind Franklin. She should really have got the Nobel Prize. There's a stupid boss who ended up getting it. <laughs> I've met a stupid boss and he's stupid. <laughs> Years ago. Excuse me. And so, while uh, Francis Crick was sitting around smoking his pipe, um, Watson has, was actually cutting out pieces of uh, paper and sliding them around to see how, how these things could fit together. And then what he noticed was that the, um, the AT and the GC can be hydrogen bond bonded together to form pairs that are pretty much identical. Okay, so if you look at the AT and the GC, if you bring them together in, a, in such a way, you can get hydrogen bonding between these groups. But the, the key thing is that the shape of that base, uh, that base pair is exactly the same as the shape of that base pair. Right, even down to the angle, if you draw a line between the C1 carbons over here, and look at the angle, it's 51.5 degrees. And then the distance between these two carbons is exactly 1.085 nanometers. And so they thought, okay, this, this must mean something. And so what they did, they came up with a, a molecule such that these two are stacked together. You want to put the, the, the apolar bases in the middle away from the solvent. You want to put the phosphate groups around the outside in contact with the solvent. And then if you stack them on top of each other, you can generate a helix which perfectly described the helical parameters that Rosalind Franklin uh, discovered using the diffraction pattern. And, and then the natural feature of this molecule is that the phosphate group, uh, the sugar phosphate backbone, is in opposite direction. So one goes 5' prime to 3', prime, and the other one goes 3' prime to 5'. Prime. So that it's an anti-parallel double, double helix. And then this picture shows you um, I'll come back to this in a moment, but it's a classic major groove, the minor groove, the pitch of the helix going from one, going all the way around one turn is 34 nanometers. So there's 10 repeats, so that the distance per 
repeat is 34 divided by 10, 3.4 uh, nanometers. Sorry, 3.4 angstroms uh, is, is the repeat. And it's a right-handed helix, right? So if you think of screwing in a, a screwdriver, it's a right-handed helix. And that course, from both sides, a right-handedness is independent of the direction. So it's a right-handed helix. Okay, I'll just make sure I don't miss anything here. So just as an aside, um, there's actually a considerable range of content in the GC uh, in the GC content of DNA. Okay, so you can you can because the the genetic code is redundant, uh, you can mess around with the GC content and still maintain uh, you know the, the correct coding of the underlying proteins. Um, so mammals like us are around 40 to 45 percent of our DNA is GC. But in some thermophilic bacteria that live at very high temperatures, they've evolved to have a higher GC content, could be as high as 75%. And the reason for that is because if we go back to this, there's the AT has got two hydrogen bonds, right? whereas the GC has got three hydrogen bonds. So the DNA is, uh, with GC in it is inherently one hydrogen bond more stable than, a, than an AT-based pair. So if you want more stability at a higher temperature, you just throw in more GCs, and it's, then it's the thermal melt. If you, if you melt DNA, it melts at a higher temperature, the, higher, the, the bigger the content of GC. Now, the, the helical parameters, if, if you look, um, so I'm going to describe a couple of different types of uh, DNA helices, but the parameters that define those different structures by, by two features of the nucleotide. Now the one is, obviously this is not flat, the ribose ring is not flat because you've got sp3 carbons and oxygens here, so it goes sort of up and down. But there's two types of pucker, right? So if you put the, the C4, C1 and the oxygen in a plane, you can either have the C2 sticking up, or you can flick it down, or the C2 goes up and the C3 prime goes up. So this is called the C2 prime endo. This is sticking out of the plane. And this is the C3 prime endo. Okay, so it's there and there. Also, if you look at the connection between the sugar and, and, the, and the base, you can have sin. So with respect to this, the base is sort of folded down close to the, close to the sugar. That's called sin, right? Well, I remember that sin, same sign. That's when I was a kid. Um, or it can be anti, right? so you flip it around, that bond comes up, and now you're on the anti-conformation. <coughs> and DNA in um, double-stranded is always in the sin conformation. But there's some very interesting things you can get from anti, which I'll, I'll show you. Okay, so... Um, this is an interesting story. There's a, there's a, there was a guy in Cambridge called, uh, I think his name was Drew, and he was trying to understand DNA from a, no, trying to understand the structure of DNA from a more of an engineering type of uh, aspect. So he walked down you know, the street to the engineering department of Cambridge and met up with a guy called Caladine, 
who's an engineer, and they, together they, they um, came up with a very good description of why the DNA is, is in a double helix. And there's an, a very nice book called Caladine and Drew, actually. I can't remember the name, but if you just Google Caladine and Drew, it's a really nice little paperback about the structure and function of DNA. I highly recommend that you buy it. So, so Caladine just looked at this and said, okay, there's really just four parameters in engineering, right? He tries to reduce it down to simplicity. So there's really four parameters that dictate the structure. First of all, the sugar phosphate backbone is hydrophilic, has to be in contact with the solvent. Uh, the, pure, the bases are basically hydrophobic, like benzene rings, so they want to be away from the solvent, stacked in the middle. The thickness of the base is, is 3.3 angstroms, but the distance, uh, the phosphate, so the phosphate distance, if you sort of linear plot it out, is, is 6 angstroms. So the difference means that if you want to go, if you stack the bases together, but the distance, uh, the, the distance that of the chemistry that connects them is six angstroms, there's a disconnect, right? You can't, there's the base, it's 3.3, but these phosphate, uh, the sugars are six point, so there's a hole in the middle. So what do you do about the hole? There's two ways you can, you can fill the hole. You can, if you've got a hole, you can either do this, right? So that distance between my fingers is six angstroms. So if you clack it down, you can now stack them together, or you can, do the twist them. So as you twist, the distance get more and more, and then it stacks on top of each other. So that's the first oh, first scenario. The second scenario. Now this is not such a great scenario because if you complete that, you just get this staircase structure, right? Where the one one side, the back side of this is always going to be in contact with solvent, and the phosphates will be on one side. But with this type of structure. Makes more, oops, it makes more sense because as it goes around, the phosphate group is going around as well and it's sort of covering the outside of the molecule. So this is why this one is preferred and not this one. Okay, now if you just do some simple math, you know this distance, you know that distance, uh, you can just plot this all out. It turns out that the twist between the bases has got to be 32, 32 degrees if you want to draw that structure. And if you go around 10 times, you end up at 320 degrees, which is almost a complete turn. So that's sort of more or less, so there's, there's variations in that 32, which make, brings it to 36. But that sort of really describes why you have uh, a DNA double helix. It's simply the way that the bases have to stack on top of each other and, and maintain the chemical bonding. Okay, so if you just look at this triangle here, yeah, so this is... Six angstroms connection, that's the 3.3. That gives you the five angstroms on this side. You do the, the triangle here, and you plot that all out, you get the DNA structure. Okay, base pairing. You all heard about Watson Crick base pairing? I hope. <laughs> um, so, this is the Watson Crick, okay. Um, what got them the Nobel Prize. So you get two hydrogen bonds um, in the AT, as I said, and you get three hydrogen bonds in the GC, and the, and the, the shape of these two are, are identical. But some smart guy called Hoogstein said, okay, well, that's great, but there's, that, there's actually another way you can do this. Um, if you keep 
this sugar same. So this is both sin, right? So both, don't forget, this, this chain is coming towards you, this chain is going away from you, so they're sort of the same with respect to the, to the sugar. So they're both in the sin orientation. But he said, well, if you flip that one out over here, then you can actually get a base pair coming in the back side of the base. Okay? So keep flip that one over to the anti-confirmation, and now you can get something coming in from the back. You could do the same with GC. Um, so people thought it was a bit crazy until they actually found these uh, in DNA. It turns out to be really important. So it's, it's amazing how many people have never heard of Hookstein base pairing. Has anybody heard of it before? It's just not taught. It's really important. I mean, there's PIs, I know it's in Jude, who talk about Hookstein base pairing, they look what? Um, but it's really important. Okay. So, one thing you can think about here is that, okay, so relative to this, okay, this is the back side of the base, right? So you you have base pairing on this side. This is the back side right? on this side. Corresponds to this side. You can actually put another. This will be the major groove. So I'll show you. So there's space to actually put another chain in here with a purine coming into the back side, and the same over here. The back side, which is this part. So you can actually get triple structures. This will predict that you can get triple-stranded DNA structures, where you have this type of base, and then you have a purine coming in into the minor group. So when, once this was predicted, you can, you can draw up some DNA sequences and say, I predict this might form a triple helix because all the base pairing is correct with the Watson Crick and the Hoogstein. And people actually found out you can get uh, triple helices. And people played around with therapy for this for a while, but maybe um, you, know, you can make a, a, tri a third strand that will maybe block transcription factor binding site or something like that. Didn't go anywhere. But people have formally solved the structures of these things with a triple-stranded DNA helix sort of pretty interesting. And I'll show you an example of where this actually happens in RNA. Okay, going back to Kaladin and Drew, um, engineer, um, he said, okay, we can actually make the base look like this. Okay, so just get down to it. It's very simple, very simple um, shape. We have the, the ribos here. Uh, you have the two bases, and this is Watson Crick. Uh, base pairing. Now, if you, get, you have to go the long way around, and the long way around is, is the side where the major groove is. Okay, it doesn't it doesn't reflect how big the groove is in the in the structure of the DNA. It reflects that it's the long way around to get from one base one ribose to the other. And then the minor groove is the short way around. Right. So if you flip this onto look at it from the side, in the pictures I'll show you. And this again is straight from Caladine's book. Um, this is going to be shaded. So the minor groove side of the base is always shaded. Right? Again, so then you looked at the two pairs of bases, right? Um, there's six degrees of freedom. Right? So don't forget these are chemical bonds, so there's some play in this. Um, you can go, you can move, say this one, you can move it this way relative to that, this way or this way. 
or you can twist it this way, twist, or you can twist it this way, or you can twist it that way. Right? So there's six <laughs> degrees of freedom. But then if you look at the look at the chemistry, it turns out there's only really three. Right? And the three are these. You can you can twist this. So this is twist. So it's the twist is the is the angle of one base relative to the other along the axis. That's the twist. There's the roll, so you can actually open up the bases. Right? You can grab this and open it up and close it down. So positive roll is opening up the bases on the, on the minor groove side. Right? So this is positive roll. So these are shaded. Or you can slide. You can actually sort of slide these things relative to each other. But you can't you can't do this because they're chemically linked. You can't roll them this way. You can't do this type of action because they're linked on this side. So it turns out there's only three degrees. We're not talking about huge degrees of freedom, but some play uh, in, in that sort of basic structure. All right, so roll is a, is opens up positive or closes down the minor, the minor groove separation. The twist is the rotation. With positive, positive twist is right-handed twist. And then slide is sort of sliding these. This is positive slide, and that would be negative slide. You're probably wondering why the hell I'm telling you this, because, but it's got a huge implication for the structure of DNA. And they're linked together. So obviously, the more twist you have, you strain that bond, and that's going to be difficult to the, the roll, right? Because you, you stretch that bond as much as it can go, and now you've got those play. If you slide them again, you stretch that bond, and now you've got no. And so you can't have all three together. You get a, a lot of twist, you get reduced amounts of this. You get a lot of roll, you get reduced amounts of this, right? Because they, they sort of interact with each other. Okay, so what's the implication of this? All right, there's no deformation. Right, roll is zero, uh, slide is zero, twist is not shown here, twist is zero. You get your perfect DNA structure the way that Watson and Crick drew it up. Now, you get some interesting things. So if you'd have a slide between each base, so each base is slid out by two angstroms, now you start to generate sort of a, a more distorted structure. If you go back to this and add roll, take roll each base with respect, now you get more of this sort of staircase type thing. And if you had roll and slide, uh, at roll and slide together, you get this. Okay? This turns out to be A form DNA, and this turns out to be B form DNA. So these actually exist. And again, you can understand where these are coming from just by considering the structure of the DNA and, and, and the degrees of freedom that you've got available to you. So B-form DNA, this is the one that you all know about and love. Right? It's the one that typically occurs in our cells because it's at high humidity and it's a normal form. So it's a right-handed helix, pitch of 10 residues per turn, Twist is 36 degrees, so the basic value of twist is 36 degrees. So if you get more twist, 
could be 37, 38, right? Roll is zero, slide is zero. And the, C, the sugar is C2 prime endo. So that's really what dictates this structure. Um, there's a clear major and minor groove, major groove here, minor groove there. And there's two two-fold axes. If you want to think about, if you forget about the sequence and just look at the structure. If you rotate the, the molecule around my finger, then you won't see any difference. Or you can just do it between the bases and rotate, and you won't see any difference. I mean, that's definitely need to know that from the structure point of view. Okay, so this is interesting. So why is it the DNA polymerases are so accurate? Um, it's not as though they're carefully reading the sequence because they, they scream along, right? And they, they can make DNA a huge rate, but they still maintain accuracy. So what the DNA polymerases are really doing is they're monitoring this structure. If there's any distortion at all, so if there's a wrong base pair in there, the structure is going to get slightly distorted. And what essentially what the polymerase do it generates a little hole and it pushes the product through that hole and make it small enough. If that's the product, it will fit nicely through the hole and keep going. If there's a distortion, it won't get through the hole. thing gets held up, okay, the polymerase stops, then an editing function comes in, removes the, the wrong bases and it tries again. So the, the basic reason why the polymerases are fast and accurate is that they're monitoring the structure and not really the sequence. Okay, this is A-form DNA, occurs at much higher, at 75% humidity, but again it's a right-handed helix, um, there's the roll value and the twist, and here to get to this structure the sugar ring is C3 prime endo, so there's just one difference in the chemistry. You take the C2 prime endo ribose, make it C3 prime endo, and you generate this structure. So it's more, and here, sort of difficult to see, right, you can't... If you didn't know, which is the minor and major groove? They're more or less the same size. I mean, it's been shaded, so this is the major and this is the minor. So people always say, you know, well, it's the major groove because it's the bigger one. But that's not the case here, right? They're about the same size. The major groove is defined as I said previously. Just going back to this for a minute. Now, if you want to recognize the DNA sequence, what, how would you do it? Well, you wouldn't want to do it through that, right? There's not much to play with, there's not much space. But here you've got plenty of space and plenty of hydrogen bonding potential here. And so uh, DNA binding proteins, when they need to read the sequence, typically do it through the major groove because there's a lot more to read rather than the minor groove. How many of you took my protein structures? Something, right? So you didn't? She's <laughs> looking. Did I miss something? <laughs> But I showed, in that, I showed you a bunch of um, DNA binding proteins, and they typically like shove a helix into the major groove, and then the helix has got amino acids that so can read out what the sequence is inside this big space here. So there would have to be different enzymes for the A form, or would they also fit? Uh, that's a good question. The, the, the A form is not really made. It's, it's the DNA is... The B form is the one that's made. Actually, the A form, as I'll show you, is really more important for RNA. 
because RNA is in A form structure that I'll come back to. This is just for completeness. It's called ZDNA or ZDNA in England. And this is something actually that Alex Rich, a really famous guy from um, MIT, predicted years ago. Spent basically his career looking for it and looking for enzymes uh, that would read it, or molecules that would read it. And if actually it does exist. And so these are poly DG, uh, GC. And that at lower humidity, they form this thing called ZDNA. And what's really interesting about this, we won't go into the structure, but it's, it's a left-hand helix. And so what uh, Alex Rich always said, that maybe they, that the DNA can throw this in. So if you get some supercoiling, you need to unwind it. If you throw in a couple of stretches of ZDNA, you can put some negative um, you know, left-handed helices and unwound uh, the supercoil. And there's actually some uh, enzymes and proteins that have been discovered now that read cDNA. Okay, so the fun doesn't stop there. Right? Um, if you imagine your base, you put a hand up in front of you, put your hand on top. See these areas here? Those are exposed um, to the solvent. And that's not good, right? Because these are... Um, these are apolar regions. And so naturally, each base pair would like to try and cover up as much of this as possible. So the way to do it is to twist, twist, and move. If I turn it around, you can see I've covered up more. So it do itself. Rotate, rotate, and then twist, put it back together. So sort of this idea where um, the bases have got spaces that want to cover up. If you rotate this, and rotate this, and move them together, and then you cover that more and left less of it free to the outside. And the bases do this in DNA. Right? It's not. This is not magic. It's just that the chemistry, the thermodynamics of the system drives it to this because it wants to get to the lowest possible energy. So this is one. One. This is not a base pair. This is a base. Right. So there's another base over here in the base pair. But if the other one does the same in the same fashion, you end up, the bases are more like this, they're twisted with respect to each other. And it's always, it's always a left-handed twist, right? go from there, to there, to there, to there. So this is now covering up more space over here, this is more covering up here. But in doing so, the base pair has got distorted, and that's why it's called a propeller twist. And so it's a payoff, right? So. You, since you've distorted these hydrogen bonds, you've lost a bit of energy because the hydrogen bonds are not like as sort of sweet as they were before. But you've gained energy because you've you've just got more stacking energy, and so the, the stacking energy that you get offsets the hydrogen bonding distortion. And so this turns out to be the the more stable structure. So the propeller twist has got huge implications on the structure of DNA because now you start getting clashes. You get a clash between here and here because they're no longer flat, they're actually twisted and start, they start banging into the, the base pair below it. And it's particularly a problem if you get a purine pyrimidine sequence. So here, if you have purine going to a, sorry, pyrimidine going to a purine, Pyrimidine going to a purine, 
because of the twist, because of this propeller twist, you get a clash right here, right? because this large one is clashing against that large one. So how do you relieve that, that clash? So this is, don't forget, this is pyrimidine purine. If it was a purine pyrimidine, the clash would occur on the back. So it's the same problem. So how would you get rid of that? So there's two ways. Right? You can either just put some sliding, negative slide, so physically move those apart from each other so that clash disappears. But a clever one is that if you put some rolling and then slide, you can actually gain some energy because now you, you roll them out and then that allows you to slide them back together and get some more stacking interaction. So here is a plotted slide versus roll. So there's lots of DNA structures that have been determined by crystallography. So that allows you to precisely measure these parameters. And if you look at the, you know, the roll versus the slide the plot, this whole lot are the pyrimidine and purines, the split. So this lot over here have taken this course and just slid apart, and this lot over here have taken this course and come together and put some roll in. So what this means is that the sequence of the DNA determines the local structure. So if you have a lot of pyrimidine purine steps, you're going to get lots of um, these types of distortions in the DNA to, to accommodate those steps. And also has an implication um, if you bind a protein to DNA. So this is an old structure, 434 repressor bound to DNA. So what you're doing here is that the protein is binding to one side of the DNA. Right? So the, the, and it's, it's, it's neutralizing the negative charge. Right? You put some positive charges on, on the protein, neutralize the negative charge on the DNA on one side. And what that naturally does, it now produces a bend because now the negative charges over here are going to sort of repel from each other. They're normally balanced by the negative charges over here. But that balance is gone, and so the DNA gets sort of twists, opens up, and bends at that position just because there's a protein bound. And then structures have shown that um, GC sequences tolerate high positive role and AT sequences tolerate low positive role. And by bending the DNA at that position, you compress the minor, the minor groove, right? You twist it together. And so you have a sequence in there that can tolerate the fact that the minor groove has been compressed, and that is the AT sequence. So what people have done, for instance, they've taken the, the recognition sequence for the DNA, so that it recognizes in the major groove there and there, and then, but it doesn't recognize this, so you can mess around with the sequence in the middle. If you put a high GC sequence in the middle, actually the 434 repressor binds much less weakly because it's not able to accommodate that role, uh, the bend in the DNA. You can see this in nucleosomes as well. So you know what nucleosome is, is the DNA is wrapped around, right? Two turns of DNA per nucleosome. So if you think about it, as you go around the DNA, it's going in contact with the nucleosome outside, contact outside, and it's bent. And so it's 
So the minor groove is compressed every time it comes in contact with the nucleosome because it's on the inside. And if you survey DNA sequences, they tend to have a pulsing AT-rich sequence. So it goes up and down, up and down. So this is where uh, the DNA tends to be in contact with the nucleosome. It has to be high AT and low AT on the outside. And conversely, you have GC out of phase with the AT. So I'm not saying that DNA sequences, you know, that they're all ATT, GGG, ATT. What, what I'm saying is that if you do a, like a, a computer analysis of sequence, they tend, there's a tendency to be AT-rich, GC-rich, out of phase every 10 uh, nucleotides. Okay, supercoiling. Um, this used to be easy to teach because uh, they used to, a lot of people, everyone knew about telephones with wires attached to the telephone, but everyone now has got, has got uh, <coughs> cell phones. But how many times have you picked up a wire telephone and the, the, the cable is all screwed up, right? It drives you nuts, right? So you have to hold the phone and let it untwist and put it down. And people have actually done studies because they, what they tend to do is they pick up the phone, they get tired, they put it onto the other pick up the phone and turn it, push it down. In fact, you put a twist into the wire every time you do that. And that bend, I know there's some sad people around, but that actually what causes twisting of telephone wires. So those are supercoils. And since DNA is a double helical structure, it has supercoiling. So what supercoiling really is, is torsional stress, right? You've introduced torsion in, into the into the helix. And if you just think, take a piece of a rope, you can do this when you go home, take a piece of rope, put some twists into it and tie it, and hold it up, and it will form these, this type of structure. I'm sure you've all done that. Right? Um, and what, what's happening here is, to, because of the stress that you put into the rope, the way it relieves the stress is to form these so-called catenines. But formally, you can actually unwind this and produce one of these structures. And it will drive you nuts, but it's actually worth doing this. Um, you can actually convert that into toroids. They're, they're totally equivalent. And so there's two ways of relieving stress with these catenines or the toroids. And it turns out that natural DNA is about 6% un underwound. So if you take DNA, it's, it's actually unwound by about one turn of DNA for every 17 turns of the double helix. So it's negatively stressed. So there's a reason nature's done that. I'll come back to that. Okay, so the math here is, is quite, it's quite simple. Um, basically, if you have a closed structure uh, with these writhe turns, there's nothing you can do to, un to get rid of them. Okay, it's a, it's a feature. The only way you can get rid of them is to cut the, the rope, or untie the knot, let the things turn out, put them back together. So that fundamental feature is called the linking number, over here, LK. And so, um, if you just think of a, a circle, I'm going to take the circle, undo it, put three turns in, put it back together, and now you can see that there's three turns of twist, right? If you sort of see how that works. Yeah. Now, if you put one of these catenines in, you end up with two twists, two black pieces. Right? Um, if you put two writhe turns, you end up with one twist, 
And if you put three writhe turns, you end up with no twist. So you've completely relieved it. And so this is what this is, right? Any combination of twists or writhe has to be equal, has to be constant, and that's called the linking number. So this is a right-handed, this is a, uh, sorry, that's a left-handed, this is a right-handed situation, same type of thing. So, so if DNA is unwound by four turns and rejoined, the torsion stress complete, completely relieved by four writhe turns, right? So, uh, so in the uh, so twist, writhe, and link start out with zero. After unwinding, put them back together. Twist is now minus four. Writhe is zero. Linking number is minus four. That stays constant. After putting four right-hand supercoils, the twist now becomes zero, but the writhe has become minus four. But the linking number stays constant. You cannot change the linking number unless you physically cut the DNA. So this is what topoisomerases do. Right? Topoisomerases like move ahead of like DNA polymerases, where you're unwinding the double strand. By unwind, unwinding it, you're putting supercoils ahead of the polymerase. Right? Because you're, when you unwind it, you're putting a twist of minus, you know, minus 360 degrees, simply because you've unwound it. Now you generate supercoils, and unless you do something about it, the whole thing grinds to a halt because you get this mess ahead of the polymerase. So what happens ahead of the polymerase, you get topoisomerases coming in, continually cutting the DNA and unraveling the mess ahead of the polymerase. It's got some interesting implications. So you have a piece of DNA, okay, with all these, uh, with a twist of minus two and a writhe of zero. So this. If you just wrap this around something, you can actually completely relieve. Uh, so these are toroids then. We put some toroids in, and now we completely relieve the stress. Another thing you can do, think about it, if a polymerase comes and opens up the DNA, as I said before, you're going to generate stress ahead of the polymerase. So, this is what a nucleosome is, right? This is two turns of DNA. And so if you take the nucleosomes away, you automatically generate um, stress in the DNA. Because by putting the, the DNA around the nucleosome, you're introducing toroids into the DNA. You take the nucleosome away, those toroids get converted into twist. So you get negatively, um, negatively unwound DNA. And there's something else clever you can do. So you have a piece of DNA, and you want to open up the DNA. Right? One way to do it is take the DNA and wrap it around something. So now you introduce some toroids. You're, you're introducing uh, a, a writhe into the DNA. And so to compensate for that, the twist has to, has to go down it's elsewhere in the DNA. And that's exactly what happens at like promoter regions, um, where or initiated regions for replication. What you need, the, the replication machinery needs to get into the DNA somehow and open it up and start copying it. So what happens is just at the initiator region, you have a protein which wraps the DNA around the initiator. It loosens up the DNA uh, next door to that and that allows the polymerase to get in and start doing its job.
So the tanner box, for instance, that's probably the reason for the tanner box. Um, the tanner box is primidine purine steps, right? So that produces some stress in the in the local structure, and also this the, the fact that it's TATA means that there's only 200 bonds um, between the bases in these regions. So the whole this whole region of DNA is much looser, and it allows the transcription machinery to get in. So that's why the TATA sequence is conserved in tunnel regions. Okay, now to some speciality structures. It's getting cold, so. Anybody heard of G quartets? G-quartets are, were discovered because we're looking, people were looking at the end of chromosomes. You know, at the end of chromosomes, you get these telomeres, which protect the end. You know, as you get older like me, you know, your telomeres get less and less. Right? Um, so the, the telomeres have <coughs> special sequences, and they're very G-rich. And it's proposed that maybe the end of the telomere is stabilized by a special structure that involves those guanines. And then people started doing some structure analysis uh, with model sequences. And what they found is, is this G quartet. And this is an incredibly stable local region of DNA. So what happens is you get four guanines come together, and they Hoogstein base pair with each other, coming from the backside. It turns out there's a positive charge generated in the middle. You put a, like a chloride ion in the middle there, some negatively charged ion. And so... What, and then you can stack them on top of each other. And so this is what you actually find at the end of telomeres. And there's four, various ways you can do this, right? Each of these can come from four different strands. It's called a tetrameric. Or you can get two strands that double back on each other. You still generate the quartet, but now it's only generated from two strands. Or you can get one whole piece of DNA with the Gs in the right position to form the G quartet. And this is what actually happens at the, t at the end of the telomere. You get all these Gs that fold back and form this quartet structure. So G quartets have, have been discovered everywhere now. Um, they're found in transcription sites. Um, they're really important regions of DNA. In fact, there's a drug company that's, um, that um, is trying to look for small molecules that will sit on top of this G quartet, sort of drape side chains down the side to stabilize this whole thing. Because one of the <coughs> most famous G quartet structures is on the MIC oncogene, um, the uh, transcription activator site for the MIC oncogene. So that's involved in many, many cancers. And so if you can dial down the expression of MIC, there's, a, there's an idea that you, you can actually help to, to treat cancer. So that's what this company is based on. Uh, as an aside, Probably what's happening to the sea on the other side. Right. Uh, it turns out that the seas, if you have a string of G's that form a G quartet over here, you have, you have a string of C's on the other side they have got to do something. And they form something called an I structure, which has just sort of recently been found. I don't have a picture of it. Sorry. So what drives that sort of interconversion between the normal D4 DNA and then separating into the G quartet sort of situation? Um, this is so much more stable that it actually just pops out. Uh, this, is, this is way more stable than a Watson-Crick base pair. So if you have a piece of DNA with the right sequence, 
So, you know, nature has put the G's in the right position. So you have like three G's, a space, three G's, a space, on that. Uh, this will automatically form a G quartet because it's much more stable. Holiday junctions. Have you heard of the Holiday junctions? A guy called Holiday, not Doc Holiday, but some other guy called Holiday. Um, he showed that this is a really important because what you're doing here, so you have two, two DNA strains, yeah, this one, but they're, they're actually um, handing off one of their strains to another DNA strand, so you get a crossover. So you get one of the, the green comes over and then takes over the red, right? And the red, so the red here has been displaced, so that goes down to the yellow and then the whole thing forms this um, quartet structure. These are incredibly important in things like DNA repair and um, homologous recombination. And this is how you sort of draw it up theoretically. It turns out there's a, this is a crystal structure of a holiday junction. So what happens, you might start here with the blue and the, and the yellow. So the blue's coming up. What happens, the blue leaves the yellow and crosses over forms the red, so that forms that. And then over here, they get the red-green helix coming in. The green leaves its partner and joins onto the yellow. So there's two DNA, double-stranded DNAs that are switching out their, their um, strands and pass them off to their neighbor. And this is the basis of sexual reproduction, right? This is what happens during sexual reproduction. You get a hodgey junction and the genes swap partners during sexual reproduction. So that's how you know, generate genetic diversity. There are now, what's clever about this is that once you form the holiday junction, right, if you want to com complete the switch, all you have to do is grab this piece of DNA here, grab that and just pull, right? Pull on the ends, these will come in and they'll grab and you'll get the complete switch over. So once you form the holiday junction, all you have to do is put a helicase on either side, and that's what you need to do, you drive it, keep pulling away on the DNA, pulling over here, and then you complete the switch of the, of the DNA strands. So it's the formation of the holiday junction which is the important part. After that, it's simple, it's just to continue. Okay. Found this is a really cool. So, homologous recombination, which is the switch of strands, it's, no, it's important in sexual reproduction, but it's it probably evolved because you need to repair DNA. So, if you have DNA which is get a double strand break from radiation or something, nature quickly figured out you've got to do something about this and you've got to repair it. So, this is a, a claymation. <laughs> of a double strand. What you're going to see is you're going to get some radiation coming here, get a double strand break, and then it's going to use this strand, which is homologous to this, form a holiday junction, and repair the break. All right? Here we go. Here comes the radiation. Break. Now you've got a problem. Double strand break, really dangerous. But fortunately, the genetic information is contained over here. So what the DNA is going to do, it's going to chew back to make these um, three, three, three prime ends. They're going to get together, 
They're going to look for where the homology is. Well, they found it. So now this str strand can use this strand as a template. It's going to go this way, actually. Fill in the holes. And if I stop it there, this is the homology junction. See that? Homology junction. Switching over. And another homology junction. So now once it's prepared, if I grab this piece of plasticine, I can actually just keep moving and do the switch over all the way down. And continue to do that. And then at some point, resolve the homology junction. And to resolve it, I can either cut it there or I can cut it there. I think you're going to talk about this, right? So that's what it does. There's special enzymes that come in. They resolve the hotted junction. The ligase will come in, put back together again. And voila, okay, you've got your DNA, which is repaired. Completely faithfully repaired. And that's probably evolution. That's why homologous uh, recombination first evolved. There's lots of these on the web, but we could. Okay, we'll talk about, for the last 20 minutes or so, talk about RNA. So RNA is very similar to DNA. It's got all the same definitions, nucleotide, nucleoside, ribose, phosphate groups, bases, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the big difference, well, there's two big differences. Thymine is replaced by uracil, so you get an AU base pair instead of an AT. Right? And the 2 prime OH, so deoxyribonucleic acid, the ribe, I forgot to mention this, the 2 prime um, oxygen is missing in DNA, but it's present in RNA, so it's ribonucleic acid and deoxyribonucleic acid. And the reason why that OH is missing in DNA, I'll come back to in, in a minute. Now, if you look at the chemistry of the RNAs, do the analysis, you get mRNA, messenger RNA, tRNA ribosomal RNA, and there's all sorts of link RNAs and spawn RNAs, snow RNAs. It's become a huge field of research. If you're looking for something to do with your research, RNAs is the way to go if you're interested in that. Um, it's a really... People used to think, well, that was it for RNA, right? Message, tRNA, ribosomal RNA, that was about it. But now, as I'll show you, there's lots of other things that are going on with RNA. So notably, if you do the chemistry, they do not obey Chargas rules. Um, and this is because they have a lot of single-stranded covalent structure, and they've also got a lot of non... Um, uh, what's the word? The, the base pairing is, is not typically Watson-Crick. They can do other types of base pairing. And large RNA molecules can have really large, complicated three-dimensional structure, just like a protein. So if I showed you a structure of an RNA molecule, there's lots of them out there now, and showed you a protein, you'd sort of be hard-pressed just looking at them to say which is which, actually. They can also be modified, so tRNAs actually contain about 20% of modified bases. Uh, mRNAs from eukaryotes got 5' prime caps, some have got poly-A tails, and um, in general, the RNA from the more advanced organisms have more chemical uh, modifications and primitive organisms. So, there's two structural forms, which um, you won't need to know. One's A form RNA, and one's A prime. There's slight differences. I don't even know what they are, so I won't expect you to know. But they're basically A form RNA. And 
The big difference is that since it's A form, it's C3 prime endo. And there's a very good reason for that, because there's a 2 prime OH group on that ribose, it actually can't reach C2 prime endo. There's a steric, steric clash with one exception, which I'll show you. So that 2 prime OH simply forces a ribose into the C3 prime endo conformation, and then you get A4 RNA. I've given you the 11 base pairs per turn, pitch of 30 angstrom, blah, blah, blah. Again, I want you to expect you to, to learn all this stuff. And it's also shown that poly A, poly U can form a triple helix at high salt. Again, that's just FYI. Okay, so there's a lot of, you know, especially this started about 30, 40 years ago, um, when look at people looking at ribosomal RNA, and they, they realize that the structure of the RNA is really important for defining what the structure of the ribosome is. So there's a lot of work uh, went into trying to figure out, predicting what, or finding out what the tertiary structure of RNA is. And I say the driver for that was to try and understand what the three-dimensional structure of the ribosome was, because it contains so much RNA. Of course, there's a crystal structure of the, RNA, of the ribosome now. But um, So one thing you can do is predict, right? Um, what you, there's out, there's algorithms, there's websites you can go if you get, a, if you have a piece of RNA that you come across in your research and you want to find out what the probable three-dimensional structure is, you can pop it into these algorithms and they'll give you the, the potential uh, secondary structure based pairing for that, for your RNA. So what they basically do is take the RNA, make it into a circle and keep trying to close the circle by base pairing and iteratively come up with the best solution for the base pairing. So that's one way to do it. Comparative sequence analysis, this is another way. So say you've got 30 sequences of RNA, uh, of the same RNA from different organisms. You can see which, um, which parts of the sequence are conserved. You can predict a base pair, and if you think that base pair is present, you can look at the other sequences and see whether that base pair has been preserved. Right, so maybe an AU may have switched to a GC, but it can still base pair. So you can do these tricks. Um, Come up, with this, come up with a potential structure, so pop it through one of these predictions, and then look at the other sequences to see whether those other sequences conform to that prediction. So this was done way back in the 70s by a guy called Michael Levitt, who predicted the structure of tRNA. There were a lot of tRNA sequences back in the late 60s, early 70s, and he predicted what the structure of tRNA was. And when the first structure came out, he was absolutely right. He got it bang on. And I don't know if you follow Nobel Prizes, but Michael Levitt won the Nobel Prize last year in chemistry for this type of work. He's still active, he's over in Stanford. Another way you can do it is probes. Um, if you know the sequence, you can make a little oligo and see whether that oligo binds to the RNA by base pairing, right? If it doesn't bind, it means that that region of the RNA is involved in secondary structure, so it can't base pair. If there's a bulge or a loop, and you get binding, that means, okay, then that loop is present. And so you can make, generate diff different oligos to probe it and see which ones bind and which ones don't. And again, you can, so you could do your prediction, make your oligos, and see which of the predictions uh, agree with the, with the analysis. You can do simple chemical cross-linking. Right? There's loads of cr cross-linkers out there which will cross-link um, RNA. 
So you can do this in solution, you can denature, and then find out where the crosslink is. So if you have a crosslink from here to here on the, on the RNA, that means that they must be next to each other in the folded structure. You can put frets, so you can put uh, some uh, fluorescent uh, donors and acceptors on the RNA, and then see which ones light up in the structure. Right, so if, there, if there's a fret transfer between the donor and acceptor, that means they must be within a certain distance of each other. Or you can simply solve the structure, which is what I do. Um, I use X-ray diffraction. Uh, you can do the same with NMR. Okay, this is actually one of my structures from about 16, 17 years ago. This is a bit of the, uh, the ribosome. And so this is a famous piece of the ribosome that binds L11, which is a, a protein. And we actually got the structure with the protein bound, but this is just the RNA. And so if you, it was clear from lots and lots of work that this was the, we call this the roadkill structure, right? the flat structure of the RNA. But obviously it's not like this. We want to get the three-dimensional structure. So when we got it, so what happens, uh, completely unexpected actually, the green extends to the UA to form this structure. The blue and the red extend to form a semi-continuous piece of RNA. And then what happens is they actually do this. So that comes to that, that comes to that, and then they twist and come together to form the structure. But that structure did completely agree with all these types of information about this G probably forming a base pair with C, this G forming a base pair with that C, and they're actually doing that right at the very top here. And it was it's a surprise, right? Because you wouldn't expect that to base pair with that, because it's miles away. But once you actually flip it around, and that comes really close to that structure. That's why it's important to get the structure. And then this really highlights RNA will basically do anything it can to stabilize itself. Any sort of stacking, you get these weird interactions between the bases. These are completely um, non canonical. Uh, base pairs that are going on, but they just do what they can, hydrogen bonds, so very similar to proteins, right? If there's a hydrogen bond donor acceptor, thank you very much, I'll take that and help, help me stabilize it. So we found all these weird hydrogen bonding interactions that you could never have predicted. Also you get this type of secondary, like the proteins, you get this secondary structure. found this interaction between this and this, where a, a regular set of hydrogen bonding, very much like a beta sheet in a protein. You get triple stacks, right? So you get a stack here, a stack here, which stabilizes the green interacting with the blue. So go on forever talking about this, but I won't say you that. So if you want to detect RNA modifications, the, the classic way is, is reverse transcriptase, right? So you take your RNA, you throw in some reverse transcriptase, make a cDNA transcript, and then you sequence it. Right? And uh, if you modify, you can see where, from the sequencing gel, you can see where the reverse transcriptase has been stored, and then you can use that to, to detect um, uh, the structure. Right? And you can, you can investigate any piece of the RNA just by providing the, the correct uh, primer for the RT. So chemical probes, there's lots of them around, they, and they have different types of specificity. So these 
will modify bases at the Watson Crick base pairing positions, sorrelin modifies the uracil inter intercalating and cross-linking. So if you know what type of reactions these chemical probes do, you can use that to sort of backtrack and find out what the structure is. Ribonuclease, they cut the RRT at that point, cut the RNA, so if you chop the RNA, the reverse transcriptase is coming along, it comes to the cut, stops. So when you run the sequencing gel, it stops at that position and says, okay, that's where the, um, where the ribonuclease is. And different ribonucleases have different specificities, right? So RNAs T1 is G-specific, RNAs T2 has a weak specificity for A, cobra venom RNA cuts at helical regions, and so on and so forth. So you can, you can use these to probe for, for sequence and also for structure. If you want to find out where an RNA binding protein is, you just do the whole thing with and without the RNA. And then where the RNA binding protein is protecting, uh, you'll see the difference in the, in the reverse transcriptase readout because it can't get to that part of the RNA. So this is an interesting little thing. So this is... Um, you can, you can actually monitor changes in the, in the st structure of the RNA. So this is a Vibrio cholerase, it's a, it's a bug, and what it does, it binds glycine. Um, and what it's doing is, to, it's using this to detect whether there's any glycine in the environment, because a bug doesn't want to make glycine, if it doesn't have to, right? It'll just take it from its environment. And so it's a bit like a transcription factor, but it's an RNA transcription factor. So what these guys did, they wanted to find out how the structure changes as you increase the glycine. Right? What's, what's going on to the structure? So the yellow regions are the ones that don't change. Right? So as you increase the glycine, nothing changes to the sequencing pattern. Right? This region, nothing changes. So all oh, this stays the same. <coughs> that stays the same. Right? This one... It's different. So in the absence of glycine, you get a band here. As you increase the glycine, the band disappears. So it's obviously a change in the structure is taking place in that region. And it's you're decreasing the band. And that green region, you're actually increasing the band. So this is becoming more accessible. So these are two regions where this is becoming less accessible. This is becoming more accessible to the, to the RT as you add glycine. So just to give you a flavor of what you can do uh, looking at changes in structure. So tRNA was the first RNA that was really studied. Um, and it was the first time that, to, that really showed that RNA could form a well-folded uh, structure. So they all have a classic cloverleaf structure, and the lengths of the acceptor and the codon stems are the same but the size of the other two stems vary. Right? And what happens is this clover leaf is actually folded into an L-shaped structure with the acceptor arm. I'll show you this. You can read this for you if you like. <coughs> now, the important thing is that the ends of the two arms are almost exactly 80 angstroms apart. So every RNA, so you get a different tRNA for every amino acid, but when you look at that structure, it's always 80 angstroms from the anticodon to the RNA binding site. So why do you think that is? That has to be a constant. 
it's got the anticodon end and then the end that's binding the, the actual um, amino acid. That distance is always AD angstroms. What does the tRNA have to interact with? So, the ribosome. So the ribosome has got a fixed structure. Right? It's got a fixed distance between uh, where it's decoding the message and where it's making the actual peptide at the peptide or transferase site. And that distance is 80 angstroms. So you have to have a tRNA always that has the same distance to, to, to bridge that gap. Okay, so this is the classic structure. This is straight out of Leninger, I think, or one of those. Okay, so there's a cloverleaf structure. The, the amino acid gets attached to the three prime site, and the anticodon is down here. This distance to this distance is 80 angstroms, and this is how it actually folds up. So the, the magenta and the yellow come together to form a continuous helix. The blue and the green come together to form a continuous helix. And then they come together to form this L-shaped structure. And this is what sits down on the ribosome. Right? And there's lots and lots of crystal structures of these that have been done. And then this is the interesting structure here. There's actually four strands that all come together form this a very complicated interlocking four strands, all hydrogen bonded. So just about every single base in that structure is hydrogen bonded. So you can imagine there's some pretty tasty type of interactions taking place right there. And you can see this is really a piece of double-stranded RNA. This is double-stranded RNA. And then where they meet, you have to do some, some uh, gymnastics to get around that bend. Uh, just like proteins, um, there are certain substructures of RNA that are very stable. One of them is called an RNA tetraloop. So a lot of this comes from looking at ribosomal protein sequences, and you can see these conserved regions, and they're obviously conserved because you get a local structure which is conserved. And so this is a, a, a simply a local term which is always conserved in RNA, and it allows you to get around quickly around the term, and they're called tetraloops. So they have either GnRA, where N is anything, and R is a purine, um, so this is guanine, anything, purine, adenine, and uracil, anything. And then these are actually uh, NMR structures, which showed exactly what's going on. So what's really going on is that the G and the A form this uh, closing pair at the bottom, and the U and the G on the other structure. And then this, the R, so the N, is sticking out in solution. It's actually not doing anything. All it's doing is stacking on the end. So it doesn't have to any sequence. And the R is a purine that's got to fit into, in the between here. And then you get an <coughs> interaction between the ribose and, and the base. So again, I don't expect you to remember this, but you, I do expect you to remember the tetraloop is a, you know, it's one of these, like a, just like a, a beta turn in a, in, a, in a protein, conserved way that RNA has to make a turn. Now, one of the unusual things about this is where you get the stretched out piece of right there, where you've got to get across that gap, there's actually a C2 prime endo. And that's just about the only place you ever see a C2 prime endo in RNA. And it has to adopt that to make that jump across that position there. Pseudonot. 
This is another conserved structure. So if you look at this, okay, so what happens here, you have a, a stem loop, okay, and then the free RNA within the loop is actually able to base pair with another piece of the RNA structure. So it's a way of bringing together a distant piece of RNA and stacking it onto a stem loop. So it's a sort of a basic, a, big, uh, a long direction, uh, um, a long distance interaction motif. And this actually has a defined structure. So this is, again, an NMR structure. So what they made this a model system, right? So you have a start from the five prime, comes down, form stem loop, and then this extra piece comes out and actually stacks back on this root region. And it's sort of difficult to see, but what happens is that you basically, uh, the secondary structural regions stack on top of each other, Right, so stem one is in red, stem two is on blue, and they form like a continuous stack. See that? The yellow, the orange piece actually goes into the major groove of the of the lower stack, and then the green piece this actually stacks into the minor groove. So these are formally triple stranded structures. Yeah? So there's a triple strand there, and the triple strand there. So this is. You know, even though it doesn't matter how long the distance is, just where this position, where that structure is, it always forms that stable structure, where one goes into the major groove and one goes into the minor groove. So these are called pseudonauts. And another one is called an RNA kick turn. Again, this is all looking at RNA sequences from ribosomal RNA. Uh, you get this like GAA popped out. And that again forms a very stable structure where this forms a stack, that forms a stack, and then this forms a very defined structure which links the two stacks together. So once you understand how this all works, you can make these model sequences, right? And, and use them biologically as probes, for instance. So significant in RNA function, including translation, modification splicing and genetic regulation. There's a whole website. If you go to the RN, if you do Google kink turn, there's a whole website that someone in Scotland has dedicated to kink turns. Right? Everything you want to know about kink turn, uh, you'll find on that website. So finally, ribosomes. So up until like you know, the mid to towards the late 70s, early 80s, people had this RNA idea that RNA was a boring molecule, right? just did a couple of things. But then Tom Cech, who won the Nobel Prize for this, discovered that RNA actually conform, has a catalytic role. So he isolated this uh, little RNA and he showed that it actually does catalysis. And then sort of light bulbs went off. He said, oh shit, no, this, is, this explains so much. right? Um, well, Maybe what actually happened in evolution was that RNA was actually the first molecule, right? There's always this chicken and egg, what came first, proteins or DNA? Well, what actually came first was probably RNA, okay? So primitive life like billions of years ago was probably RNA-based. Uh, RNA was able to duplicate itself, and it was also able to carry out uh, catalytic functions and, do, and act as an enzyme. Then somewhere in evolution, um, an RNA made the big mistake of making a protein, probably to help to stabilize it. 
And then proteins, once it started making proteins, proteins are much better enzymes. So they quickly took over. And then at some point, the RNA lost its 2 prime OH, and it then became a much more stable molecule. And then that took on a genetic role, saved the information to make the protein. Right? So that's sort of hand wave and probably how it all, all panned out um, originally. So, so this, why, this is why DNA doesn't have 2 prime OH, right? because it's much more stable. RNA is a much more interesting molecule. It can do stuff, but interesting is not, it's not something you want when you're trying to save information. You know? like banks are not interested. Right? They were five years ago. Banks are basically should not be interested. You put your money in there, you know it's going to be safe. Casinos are interesting. Right? Um, you have more fun, but you might lose your money. So you can imagine the RNA is like the casino and the, and the bank is the DNA. Uh, in terms of ribosomes, they come in two classes. Uh, class one is the 2 prime OH within the RNA attacks the adjacent phosphate group and cleaves itself. So it self-cleaves by an internal cleavage of the OH group attacking the adjacent phosphate. The class twos are more complicated because what they usually do is they take a water molecule, they bind it and line up the water molecule and that acts as a nucleophile to attack the phosphate group. So the class two enzymes, uh, ribosomes, are typically bigger and more interesting because they have to have a structure which would align the water molecule. And our metals are very important in RNA. Okay, so again, this is our structure we did. And there's a, actually a cadmium right in there that's sort of holding this thing together. So you typically see metals in RNA, which helps to stabilize the structure. So this explains um, why RNA is interesting. Right? So this 2 prime OH can attack the phosphate group, right? form this pentacovalent intermediate, and you break the RNA. This is not something you want in DNA. Right? You don't want that to happen. Double strand breaks the DNA in bad. And so what nature did is so screw it, we'll just get rid of that oxygen and that will never happen. But this still can happen in RNA, so this is the type of thing that happens in um, class one, right? The OH tax. This oxygen attacks the phosphate and self cleaves the ribosome into two halves. But if you want to get a nucleophilic, this is an SN2 reaction for the chemist, right? you have to have directionality. It's got to attack the phosphate group in just the right way. So as it attacks, that electron pops off and goes over here. If you attack in the wrong direction, it will never happen. It's got to be in line. And so this is why double-stranded RNA is so stable, because this is in completely the wrong orientation. The 2 prime OH is next door to the, the, the attacking group, but it can't because it's it's sort of at an angle, so it's very stable. Now, if you have a piece of RNA which is more extended, which is what happens in the ribosome, it uh, aligns it so that the oxygen is now in line with the phosphate group, and that can attack it. And people have done experiments with to see how easily RNA is cleaved by generating different types of structure and see how stable it is. So they form RNA very stable, never cleaved, but once you get away from an A form RNA, then you can get into trouble if that is in the right orientation to attack that phosphate group. So what happens in a ribosome, typically, is you have a metal ion stuck here, 
the metal will activate the oxygen and allow it to attack the phosphate group. And finally, riboswitches. Again, this is something in the last 20 years, maybe, that become really big. So I showed you a riboswitch just now, the glycine in that vibrio cholera. There's all types of riboswitches that have been discovered, and they all specifically bind small molecules. Right? And so these are really like transcription factors. That the, they all typically occur in bugs, and they bind. This one binds glycine, acetylene, methionine, lysine, uh, adocysteine, uh, whatever that is, and uh, FMN. And so these these are uh, uh, intense you know, uh, research because theoretically you can use these biologically or in in, uh, in industry, right, to detect small molecules that are in the environment are making a riboswitch that then reads out whether or not it's binding that small molecule. Okay. Thank you.